Welcome to the dinner party. This is your icebreaker. I told this to Jack White recently, and he liked it so much he had me record the joke in case he wanted to use it some way. So, do you know how to call a deaf duck? I don't. Hey, duck! I'm Brendan Francis Noonan. I'm Rico Galliano, and from APM American Public Media, this is The Dinner Party, the culture show that gives you an edge in your weekend conversations. You just got a joke from the queen of rockabilly, Wanda Jackson. Yes. And she's the first of many musicians you're going to hear this hour on this very special all-music episode of The Dinner Party. Prepare your ears for the likes of Billy Bragg, James Mercer from The Shins, and... Willie Nelson. Also, Henry Rollins on etiquette and Patton Oswald on public radio's music problem. But first, the news. Except for you, podcast audience. On with the music. I'm Brendan Francis Noonan. I'm Rico Galliano. Welcome to The Dinner Party, the culture show that gives you an edge in your weekend conversations. And this week we are hosting an all-music dinner party. Yay. A few weeks back, the Coachella Festival in Southern California kicked off music festival season. This weekend, Jazz Fest begins in New Orleans, so we thought we'd host a festival of our own. You cannot see us, but we are both wearing bathing suits. Mm -hmm. We have VIP badges, and Brendan just paid 25 bucks for a vegan hot dog. Which, it turns out, is simply a bun in inside a bun. It's neat. But you know, it's all worth it because later this hour, we'll hear from James Mercer of The Shins, Janet Weiss from Wild Flag, and Motown legend Lamont Dozier. It is a strong lineup. And to get things started, here's an interview Brendan conducted in Texas when we visited another music festival, South by Southwest. Our guest of honor this week is Willie Nelson. I don't really think he needs an introduction. So we're doing a, a whole Texas show this week because of South by Southwest. Right. When I was doing some research on you, it says that you retired from music and moved to Austin around 1971. Is that true? Well, I didn't retire, obviously. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's what I was. That was my follow-up question. No, I left Nashville and moved back to Texas because, well, Texas was really where I was doing most of my work. So, uh, it was just a matter of uh, geography. When you hear the word Texas, like what is the con? Like when you when you hear that word, what's the first thing that kind of pops in your head? Well, I always smile, you know. I always smile. It's because we're talking about my home. You know, you have, you've become, I think it's safe to say, an American treasure. I'm wondering, do you have any insight? Why do people like Willie Nelson so much? I don't know. You know, uh, I'm not that great at anything. You know, I sing, sing pretty good, write, pick a little bit. and uh, I mean, it could be songs like Crazy, You're Always on My Mind, classics you've written over the years. Well, sure. I, I'm, crazy, for, uh, for sure, has, has a lot to do with my career. Patsy Cline recorded that many years ago. Her recording of that, uh, Farron Young's recording of Hello Walls, uh, Roy Orbison's recording of Pretty Paper, Ray Price recorded Nightlife. So I kind of got off the ground pretty good back in those days. Do you do you miss any of those folks? All those people you mentioned, they're all they've all gone away. Oh, I miss them all. Ray Price is still here, though. I talk to him all the time. Oh, yeah. sorry, Ray Price. <laughs> 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 I'll, I won't tell him what you said. All right, th thank you. I read that all the way back in high school, when you, you played with the Bohemian Fiddlers, which I believe was your, your sister's husband's band. Uh, yeah, the, a Bohemian polka band. Uh, it was a polka band? Well, we played a lot of polkas because we grew up in a polka area down there, and uh, polkas and waltzes and that kind of music was very popular. You had your own fan club in high school. 
I did. There was a few gals there that I ran around with and knew that started a fan club, and we were all very young, but, and it was very flattering to have a fan club at that age, and uh, yeah. naturally I thought I was pretty hot. <laughs> <laughs> well, you're also like kind of a football star and a sports star in your high school, right? Well, think about Abbott. It was a small school, so... Uh, if you came out, you got to play, you know, you know, I, <laughs> it, it didn't matter if you wanted to play basketball, football, baseball, run track, all you had to do was show up and they put you on the team because there wasn't that many players. <laughs> You're destroying the myth, Willie. You're too self-deprecating. <laughs> well, look, we have two standard questions that we ask uh, each of our guests on our show. All right. And the first question is, what question are you tired of being asked in interviews? None. Uh, you know, I don't, <laughs> you know, I have such a short-term memory, I forget what you asked me, so it, <laughs> it all sounds new to me all the time. Well, that, then that, that's easy for us. All right, well, here, our second question then might yeah. be easier. Tell us something we don't know, something we don't know either about you or about the world. Well, I don't know how well folks remember Floyd Tillman. Do you remember hmm. that name? No, I don't. Tell me. Floyd Tillman wrote a lot of great standards like I love you so much it hurts slipping around uh, and those were kind of songs that I grew up singing this cold cold war with you one of my favorite all-time songs I think I probably recorded it eight or ten times just because I love to sing it you know I just realized that asking you to tell me something you know we don't know because of your short-term memory I mean you probably <laughs> think you think we don't know anything <laughs> well I forgot what I've already told you so you <laughs> we'll have to play this back sometime <laughs> and Rico, the cool thing about rerunning that interview yeah. is that if Willie hears it, he'll have no idea it was a rerun. You know? He'll surprise him happily. Yeah, this could account for why he always seems so pleasantly happy. You know? He's able to just live in the present, is well, Willie. I think that's part of the reason he's always pleasantly happy. <laughs> I just can't stand another cold, cold war with you. So I was honored to chat with a legend like Willie. Of course. And I thought it was especially cool to share a chunk of that song with our audience. It's wonderful. But you know, for some listeners, it's not enough. Yeah, listeners like Patton Oswalt, for instance. Listeners exactly like Patton Oswalt. We're looking at you, Patton Oswalt. For those who don't know, he's a star comedian and author. He's also on record saying unkind things about public radio music. So when he came by our studio for an interview, I decided to bring it up. One last thing. Sure. You did a comedic bit on NPR. Uh-huh. You called it unlistenable radio. I'm yes. not I'm not here to hold your feet to no, the internet hey, fire I, about that. I still that. stand by that. All right, well, here's what you said. I send money to NPR. I support them. I support them philosophically. Yeah. But it's unlistenable radio. <laughs> you understand me? I send the money so I don't have to listen to them. When when did conservatives steal rock and roll from us? When did that happen? All the AM stations, all their break music is this blast gut bucket rock and roll. Bill O'Reilly will play the White Stripes for God's sakes. Then you turn over to NPR and their break music is a sad, lonely saxophone <laughs> echoing through a sewer pipe somewhere. When did that happen? All these guys, man, I swear to God, Rush Limbaugh plays Pretenders. Yeah. He's yeah. got a better, he's got the same iPod mix that I have. I don't <laughs> want to know that. Come on, Terry Gross, put some TV on the radio on there. <laughs> That's right. Yeah, let's kick some butt here. But So, look, we're at the end of our segment, and I'd like to give you the option of picking your own outro music. Is there some rocking song 
that you'd like us to play? Like a really kick-ass... Yeah, as opposed to some Berkeley Trust Fund kids recordings of Screamers. <laughs> <laughs> um, hey, uh, take me out on a Paranoid. How about that? Perfect. Great riff. Do that. It's done. Rico, every week, you and I work hard to craft engaging, entertaining radio, mm-hmm. and all we really need to do is play Sabbath loud. So Simple good. Simple formula. <laughs> we should start a new public radio show. We could call it This American Sabbath. Yes. Sabbath yeah. Home Companion. I think we're on to something. <laughs> Sabbath Lab. There you go. Look, uh, ladies and gentlemen, we don't know if Terry Gross ever took Patton up on his advice to interview TV on the radio. But I can say that after the band released their album Nine Kinds of Light last year, we interviewed him. Hi, Tunde. Hi, how's it going? Pretty good. And hello, Kip. Hey, thanks for having us. Thanks for being here. Let's hear the lead single off the album. This is a song called Will Do. Your love makes a fool of you, you can't seem to understand. A heart doesn't play by rules, and love has its own demand. But I'll be there to take care of you if ever you should decide. And you don't want to waste your life in the middle of a lovesick lullaby. But anytime I'll do my love. You're known for combining these kind of very catchy, poppy, soulful sounds with more experimental sounds. This is your fifth album. Do you feel like that battle has swung more one way or another between, you know, pop structure and your experimental side? There's definitely been times where I thought this needs more structure. And uh, 10 years ago, I I wouldn't believe that I would ever think that. What do you think made you think that way? Playing in front of people. Play live. Playing live over and over and over again. (laughs) And seeing people get confused or bored. Yeah, I think playing live definitely makes you value a structure. It doesn't have to be a conventional all right, I wanted I wanted to ask you. This is arguable, but I'm going to say the moment that you kind of showed up on mainstream radar was this incredible performance you gave on Letterman in 2006 of the song "Wolf Like Me." What do you remember of that night, if anything? It was really cold. It was freezing. It's freezing in that studio. Really? Yeah. It's interesting that that's what sticks with you, you know, because it fascinates me these milestone moments for bands, and I wonder how much they're aware of the milestone in the moment. I remember being completely completely nervous and then the last thing you want to do is fall you, on your face just fall on your face and you're so you before you go out everyone's like, it's like you know it's a one-shot thing but don't worry if you mess up we can reset and da-da-da-da. just like that is even worse <laughs> we've seen this happen a million times when bands fail utterly don't worry yeah i remember um, going to see it oh, yeah, later the, that the, night later that going night. to see it and yeah. uh i remember thinking that it, i was fully satisfied that we yeah. did not fall on our faces i didn't watch it for probably a year why is that? You Are you overly critical of yourselves, you think? Yeah, yeah. And I've also learned that what I think about our performances, no one's going to see what I see as wrong unless it's mm-hmm. so wrong. And if it's that wrong, I really don't want to know about it. Uh, we have two questions that we ask everyone on the show. Here's the first question. If we met you at a dinner party, what question shouldn't we ask? I feel like if I answer that honestly, I'm going to sound like an ingrate. But maybe I need to sound like an ingrate. I think this is your great chance to sound like an ingrate. Go for it. And the fact that you acknowledge that means that you're going to sound really cool. Well, we'll see. (laughs) Uh, We got to work with David Bowie, and David Bowie is one of the most incredible pop writers of our lifetime. Sure. Uh, Hands down. There's no question about it. Totally inspiring dude. uh, Well, you really sound like an ingrate so far. a, a A great privilege to work with that dude. A great privilege. 
yet by the end of 2007, I yeah. never wanted to be asked again what it was like to work with David Bowie. <laughs> it was like the only, the only thing that people only would, thing that people would ask. Would ask. Was just like, I started getting resentful. That damn Bowie! <laughs> you ruined my life, Bowie. Thanks a lot. Thanks for casting your glimmery shadow all over this, <laughs> all over this operation. Well, I'm sure he's listening right now and just calling up your agents and destroying your career. <laughs> uh, here's our second question. Tell us something we don't know. Okay, one, Tunde can fly. Okay. Dude. And secondly, there's uh, two birds in the world that feed their young through a milk-like substance. A milk-like substance? Yeah, called crop milk. Yeah. <laughs> and it's... <laughs> and I don't know why that bothers me. <laughs> obviously, I know they, why it bothers you. <laughs> obviously... It is gross. They don't have breasts, so it comes out of their neck. What? That's also why it it's bothers like a you. cottage cheese-like substance. Pigeons are one of the birds. Oozing are, crop milk out of their necks. I don't know if that's dinner party conversation exactly, but it is something I didn't know. Gnarly. Can you guess what the other bird is? Uh, I'm going to guess the crow because we've had several people come on the show and tell us incredible things about crows. You're wrong, Rico. Gosh. It's the flamingo. Really? How gross is that? Yeah. Think about how much crop milk a flamingo neck can produce. That's a lot of crop it's milk. a lot of neck. Enrico, if I remember correctly, you predicted that we would be seeing bird milk at third wave coffee shops around the country. That's right. But amazingly, that hasn't happened. Which means there's still an opportunity to create a bird milk food truck. That's true. We can sell bird milkshakes. All right, that's enough. I don't want to talk <laughs> bird about it. Bird flan. It's disgusting. <laughs> Folks, we're going to take a short break. But there are many more musicians to come on this special all-music episode, including pianist Jean-Yves Thibaudet and Patton Oswalt will be pleased about this. We chat with the very tough Henry Rollins. When the dinner party returns. I'm Brendan Francis Noonan. I'm Rico Galliano. Welcome back to the dinner party. Here's Billy Bragg playing us his version of Beethoven's Ode to Joy. Now like a phoenix rising from the rubble of the war Hope of ages manifested, peace and freedom evermore Brothers, sisters, stand together, raise your voices now as one Though by history divided, reconciled in unison History divided, reconciled in unison. Well, that's just lovely. Yeah, that's what Beethoven said. Beloved folk pop musician Billy Bragg. Back in 2009, he wrote those new lyrics to Ode to Joy. And we taped that clip backstage before the piece's American debut. And we played you that because this is an all-music episode of The Dinner Party. Yes. Coming up, we hear from Janet Weiss, drummer for Wild Flag. Also, Henry Rollins, former lead singer of Black Flag. It's like a who's who of rock and roll in semaphore. Exactly. It's beautiful. But first, since we're in a classical mode, here's a list from Frenchman Jean-Yves Thibaudet. He's a world-renowned classical piano star. Last year, before a performance, he listed a few favorite things about one of his favorite piano stars. Hello, my name is Jean-Yves Thibaudet. I'm a concert pianist, and I'm performing this week with the Los Angeles Philharmonic, a piece by Franz Liszt. 
Liszt was probably, I always say, with the Michael Jackson of his time, and he probably invented PR and marketing and everything that we have today. Uh, he was really a rock star. He was going around in those days with his horses and carriages, of course, because that's the way they were traveling. But he went all over Europe, performed everywhere. And, I mean, really, people were fainting, taking his gloves. And he was really what you can think of, of a rock star, and that's in the 19th century. Here are three examples why Liszt was a rock star. was fascinated by a few things and he had different periods in his life. He was first a very, very bad boy for many years. He had God knows how many mistresses and wives and just name it and children and everything. Uh, and then he ended up on the other extreme. At the end of his life, he became an abbey, a priest. So he was fascinated by religion for sure. But at the same time, early in his life, he was also fascinated by the devil. So he wrote a lot of pieces around that, and I'm thinking of one in particular called Totentanz, which means the dance of the death. And this was based after a painting, a horrible painting, that if you look at it, it just makes you, you see all the skeleton, all the dead, and, and he was fascinated by that painting, and he wrote a piece that is just unbelievably difficult. It's, it's electrical, I mean, it's so exciting, and so uh, pyrotechnical that it is really just... You just want to scream at the end. It's unbelievable. Another piece. Liszt was famous for doing transcriptions. A transcription is taking a piece for orchestra, in this case an opera, so orchestra plus singer, and reusing all of that for the piano to be played with two hands and ten fingers. And that's what Liszt was doing. One of my favorite pieces is the transcription he did of the death of Isolde from the Tristan and Isolde Wagner opera. It was an amazing challenge to have a full, like 110 musicians orchestra reduced at the piano for two hands. And then on top of that, having Isolde with her big line singing on top of that, soaring on top of all of that. And I think it's probably one of the most successful and amazing transcriptions that exists. My third choice is, it's a set of two pieces, but I call them one, but it's in two parts, that I think are some of the most fascinating pieces of his religious period. They're based on uh, two Italian legends. Uh, one is St. Francis uh, speaking to the birds, and the other one is St. Paul who is walking on the, on the water. just what I think is amazing is the spiritual intensity and the spiritual power of those two pieces. Uh, I play them in concert, as I said, many times this year, and every time the audience gets, it's, it's over just the excitement. The, the end of Saint-François de Paul is very loud, very fast, but it's beyond that. It's just you have that incredible power that you feel. He really, I think, invented a new language for the piano and took the piano and the technique of the piano to a different level. That's for sure. And that's my list list. 
concert pianist Jean-Yves Thibaudet. And it should be noted that Jean is a bit of a rock star himself. He often wears frayed designer jeans and the kind of colorful shirts while performing. He's like the Robert Plant of piano. He's exactly that. Except he wears shirts. By the way, <laughs> I think that segment would have been worth airing just for the pun at the end. The list, list. It was meant to happen. Yes. Uh, but the same cannot be said for our next segment. Every week on the show, we have someone of note answer our listeners' etiquette questions. And one of our favorites, if unlikely, masters of manners was Henry Rollins. He is, of course, the former lead singer of seminal punk band Black Flag. He hosts an amazingly eclectic radio show here in L.A. And Brendan started off by asking him about his most recent book. It's called Occupants. It's a collection of his photographs and writing. And it's pretty intense, Henry. Unexpected from you. Yeah, big surprise. Uh, A lot of the locations I go to with a camera are some of the harder-hit areas of the world, and they interest me. I think a lot of Americans are quite often poorly served by our media and by our government. So you get a story on some of these countries that's not always what it is. If you really want to know, you really have to go. And so I decided I want to go to Egypt. I want to go to Kenya. I want to go to these places. And the book is basically the product of that. And there's pictures of suffering, pictures of resilience. But one thing that's interesting, in some of these photos, we encounter black flag T-shirts on the black market. In Indonesia, in Jakarta, I encountered that beautiful woman, uh, the cigarette vendor. She's wearing a black flag shirt. And at that moment, two kids on a motorbike pull up, and they recognize me from films. And they're like, you know, what are you doing here? They speak English, they're university kids. I said, well, I'm tramping around the world. Can you explain to this good woman the incredible irony of the two of us standing together? And they did their best, (laughs) and I'm showing her the black flag tattoo on my arm, and she's nodding very, very politely, completely unimpressed. I I said, but your shirt, my arm, the band, the thing, globalization. The big picture. Yeah, and she just kind of went... Basically, you want to buy some cigarettes exactly, or not because yeah. I'm not here for my health. <laughs> so. Was she aware of, of that this was a banter? It was just, it was just a design to her, I'm None assuming. None of this impressed her at all. <laughs> but places outside Jakarta, you're known for your, your – you're a voice of authority. Yes, you were known for having a strong, occasionally aggressive moral compass. So we have some questions from our listeners who want to know how to behave. I'll do the, I'll do the best I can to keep up with you. All right, all right. So here we go. Our first question comes from Paul in Davis, California. Paul writes, I have a band – And my friend Joe really likes us. Not his real name. (laughs) He comes to all of our gigs, rain or shine. I do not like the band that Joe plays with. I see where this is going. Yeah, I feel guilty about not going to any of his band's gigs. On the other hand, life is short. Why waste it doing something you dislike? Should I stay or should I go? He says, quoting another punk band. Go to one. Paul should go to one of Joe's shows. Yeah, go to one show that perhaps uh, there's one that means a lot to him. To, to his friend? Yeah. Like, like oh, this band we, we love, we get to open for him. It's a big deal. You know, it's an hour and a half of your life. Go. And then you've made your statement. You've hung out. <laughs> yeah. And, and And music's hard work. You want people to like what you do. And, and that makes people in bands very, very similar. Britney Spears, I don't know what you think of her. She's probably a very nice gal. But she she works very hard on her records. Sure. I don't even know her, and I bet I'm right about that. Hmm. And you could probably hurt her feelings pretty quickly by saying, <laughs> I, I hate your record. And that, that would probably, she probably wouldn't walk it off. And, and neither would I if you said that about mine. All musicians put so much into this. If you don't show up, oh, they feel it. They might be polite. Go, oh, no, don't worry about it. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But, you know, if, if he went once, that's a good sign of friendship. All right. So the answer is, Paul, go. And we've got a question number two. Yeah. Uh, Justin in Dallas, Texas writes, 
At dinner parties, I'm often tempted to adapt a story from third to first person to make it more engaging, more lively. For example, there's this one story where my mother was attacked by a large monkey in Thailand. It was climbing all over her. I was there when it happened, but it's a better story if I tell it in the first person, like pretending it happened to him. Anyway, I feel like this must happen a lot. Is it okay to do that? To steal well, a story and say it's yours. You're basically lying. Yeah. You're stealing. <laughs> but, Is that all right? Well, you know, the blues, there's a lot of theft in the blues and folk. You know, that, it's just that's kind right. Of, it's folk music. We, we kind of move things around, and if it is a better story for you to tell it in the first person. You know, your mom, who got nearly eaten, had her face bitten in Thailand by a monkey. She might not be very good at pitching it. Maybe her mouth was hurt by the monkey. Maybe she's just not a very good storyteller. And maybe this guy is an exceptional storyteller who just needs good clay to make that bit wow. of pottery. Sure. Um, all great storytellers have a little bit of lie in a mask Mark Twain. For If it were me... No, I, I I would only say uh, here's what I saw happen, and I'd make it funny or you know, thrilling. Although, admittedly, a lot of stuff happens to you as opposed to most of us. Show enough, <laughs> but I would never say it was my face. And yeah. um, you know, here's the scars. All right, all right. So that's between you and your mother, yeah. Justin. Work it out with your mom, Justin. Here is uh, here's question number three: How is one supposed to act when embraced with a weak handshake? Do you counter with your own manly grip, causing the person to feel insubordinate? Or do you respond with a similarly flaccid shake, thus succumbing to the other's inadequate proclivities? That is a tremendous question. Mm -hmm. I shake a lot of hands. All right. Quite often, you have to shake someone's hand as a formality. Mm -hmm. And quite often, it's this limp, cold thing. You are giving me this limp paw. And who did that to me? Chris Rock did that to me. Really? What? Where he just placed it, this this very small, very limp hand. Oh, no. And we were both on the same label at that moment. We were both on DreamWorks. We were doing some big universal press hoedown. Erica Badu and uh, Mary J. Blige and Chris Rock and Sammy Hagar and myself. Oh, man. Let me just take that in for a second. Yeah. Yep. Sammy yep. Hagar. That, everybody. That's uh, the green room on Mars. I, I love this country. <laughs> and uh, and I shook hands. I said, hey, Chris, I'm on the same label and, and you know, you're great. And, you know, because he, he is so funny and, and, and so smart. And I stuck my hand out. And there's a look on his face like, really? And he just put this icy, cold, and I went, okay. And I kind of held it like an orchid. (laughs) Like, I don't want to hurt this cold thing in my hand, but I want it to get out. So I gave it like shake one, shake two, and gently release. Like a butterfly. Yes. That has happened to me a few times. And so I always meet it politely with a medium handshake in that I am respecting your hand in mine. I am respecting this ritual. And every once in a while, uh, you know, you get that shake, that meaty, firm one. You're like, wow, that guy's hand strength is incredible. Yeah. It's uh, sometimes I do USO tours and I'll stand in front of a line of like, you know, several Marines and your hand is smarting at the (laughs) end of the day. All right. We have one last question, which is uh, what's the most memorable get together you've ever been to? Who, what, where, details, please. Wow. Yeah. Uh, I mean, you've written about 700 books where people could get some insight into this. Well, I've been able to be in rooms with interesting people. Quite often, the green room 
at Bill Maher's show, Politically Incorrect, was fun because he would shoot like three in a day. Okay. So all the guests are basically told, appear at the green room now, just so no one gets lost. And if you're in the third episode, you get to watch and kvetch with everyone else. And so you're standing in a green room with Martin Mull and Dr. Joyce Brothers (laughs) and Ted Nugent (laughs) and Carl Bernstein. Literally. Wow. And you're like, wow, let's talk about Watergate. Let's talk about killing animals, killing the the whack master (laughs) arrow. You'd walk back to your car going, that was eclectic as hell. Yeah. Yeah. How did this happen to me? And my souvenir, a bow hunting catalog from (laughs) Ted Nugent. Audience, who did you hang out with this weekend? Henry Rollins, thanks so much. No problem. For coming in and giving us etiquette tips. You got it. And folks, there was much, much more to that conversation. Henry Rollins really likes to talk, it turns out. Yes. In Surprising. fact, in fact, if you want to hear him tell us a story about watching Joe Strummer serenade Johnny Cash, true story. We've got it exclusively on our website, dinnerpartydownload.org. Everybody's gonna hang out here tonight. All right. We'll pass out on the couch. So once again, you're listening to The Dinner Party from American Public Media. This is our first ever all-music episode. And every now and then on the show, we ask a musician to tell us what music they'd play at their dinner party. So here's Janet Weiss with her list. She's drummed for some of the best bands in indie rock, including the legendary Sleater Kinney and her acclaimed new band, which we'll let her mention. Hey, I'm Janet Weiss. I'm the drummer for Wild Flag, and I have picked three songs to play at your dinner party. The first is I Only Have Eyes for You by the Flamingos. My love must be a kind of blind love. I can't see anyone but you. It's just a haunting song from the 50s with some of the coolest vocals and background vocals I've ever heard. It seemed like it was transitioning into like a different era. Like it was coming out of doo-wop, but it was also transitioning into the 60s a little bit. So there's like a little bit sort of weirder, slightly more psychedelic kind of sound to the song. Okay, number two. Houses by a woman named Elise. I could never make it in your house. You could never make it in mine. Even if we were both well met and high born in another time. Just like a circle around the sun. Incredible stomping beat and a very intense vocal delivery and a guitar solo by Neil Young. She's Canadian. I guess he was just like wandering by the studio and he knew her from Canada and uh, came in and laid down some incredible one note solos, which are his specialty. One of the coolest songs you'll ever hear, or not hear. <laughs> Number three. 
number three. Okay, number three is going to be, because it's a dinner party, I may as well play Bring It On Home To Me by Sam Cooke. If you ever change your mind about leaving, leaving me behind, bring it to me, bring your sweet loving, bring it all. Great harmony singing. I don't even know who is singing that harmony, but it's amazing. And Sam Cooke's maybe my number one favorite male vocalist. It's the perfect voice, perfect tone and delivery. He sells it. You really think he means what he's singing. Music from the 60s and 70s, mostly the 60s, I think I've picked. Uh, it's a good era for dinner parties. If I was going to pick a Wild Flag song for a dinner party, I think it would have to be like a potluck. I guess I would pick Racehorse. It's very rowdy and uh, might promote some good conversation afterwards. Or a riot. Dinner Party soundtrack from Wild Flag drummer Janet Weiss. And folks, we checked it out. The backing vocals on that Sam Cooke song were by the great Lou Rawls. It's two soul legends for the price of one. People will continue this all-music show after a short break. Coming up, speaking of soul legends, Motown songwriter Lamont Dozier. Also, James Mercer of the Shins. Stick around. Welcome back to The Dinner Party. Here's songwriter Cass McCombs. I got jokes. So, what do you call a mainstream cloud? The stratus quo. I'm Rico Galliano. I'm Brendan Francis Noonan. A very fluffy joke from Cass there. Oh my god, yes. He produced two fantastic albums last year. And Rico, I believe he wrote that joke himself. He's a multi-talented man. Music and puns. Like us. Uh, folks, we are in the midst of an all-music episode. We've had a lot of great musicians on so far, Billy Bragg, mm-hmm. TV on the radio. But, you know, except for Willie Nelson, who we spoke to earlier, none of these folks are what you would call chart toppers. And I'm sure Henry Rollins wears that as a badge of honor. Definitely. Yeah. But our next guest, Lamont Dozier, is very different. Along with the Holland Brothers, he wrote dozens of Motown hits for the Supremes, the Four Tops. The list is endless. When I spoke to him, I started by asking one of our two standard questions. What question are you always asked in interviews that you're kind of sick of being asked? God, uh, what is my favorite song? <laughs> they well, we'll just cross that off the list then. <laughs> I mean, you know, when you got uh, some 78 top tens and 54 or 5 of those are number ones, you know, think for a minute. How could you pick out of what would be your favorite song? Well, how about we narrow it down for you? Is there a song that you wrote and you're like, this is for sure going to be yet another in my long string of number one hits, <laughs> and it, it didn't wasn't. go anywhere? <laughs> what was it? Oh, yeah. Uh, it was, and it's still a great feeling. Uh, I'm in a different world. It was done by the Four Tops. That thing still haunts me today. You know, one I can't figure out why the people didn't connect. I don't know. Maybe it's, maybe I should just blame it on the promotion at the company. Maybe they didn't promote it well. That's what I do. But <laughs> but it was so catchy. Yeah. I'm in a different world. 
like really infectious. I, I just couldn't believe why it wasn't. It, I'm almost on the verge of crying when I think about it now. <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> but, but anyway, it, it still went to, I think it was about 11 or 12 on the charts. A lot of people this say is, that. I don't feel bad for you all of a sudden. <laughs> yeah, right, right. I have, I have another question along these lines. You're, between all the hits you've written and mm-hmm. then the songs that you've produced and your own music that you've performed, mm-hmm. you must be bombarded by your music every day. Oh, <laughs> it would man. seem like your music is inescapable. How do you deal with that? You know, it's not as thrilling as it was. I, I don't even think about it. You know, it's like, uh, I, I guess I had the feeling that it's like somebody else wrote the stuff. Really? Do you feel like yeah. sort of divorced from it a little yeah. bit? Yeah. That's a good word, divorce from it. I don't really pay that much attention to it one way or another. Have you ever, what's the, sort of the most unusual situation where suddenly you found a song that you were responsible for playing? I hear them every day, but I used to, you know, when, say, I stop in the cleaners and they're playing this music in the background. Yeah. And I say, you know, happening right there. They say, oh, you did. That's great. As if I'm lying about it. So that's why I don't say nothing anymore. I just say, uh, never mind. <laughs> and uh, and they say, what is it? That song? Say, oh, I like that. You like that song? I say, oh, yeah, I like that song, too. <laughs> so so I don't even get into it. I wrote that song. I'd love it if you were like, yeah, I'm kind of sick of this one. <laughs> yeah. They play this one too much. <laughs> Uh, all right, so the second question that we ask of everybody on this show is, tell us something we don't know, something that no one at our dinner party is going to know. A lot of people don't know that I started out being a... I used to sell love letters. This is how I got what? my chops in writing lyrics and things. Selling love letters in junior high. I sold the guys... They, call, they used to call me the candy man. These are to other students? Yeah, the guys, when they had trouble with their girlfriends and... They'd run to the candy man, and the candy man would write them some stuff. A dollar a letter, two dollars for a phone call, and I'd disguise my voice and talk to the girl for them. You were like the Cyrano de Bergerac of your junior high. I, maybe a little different. <laughs> your nose is quite normal. Yeah. And Brendan, we're listening to another Dozier hit, Back to My Roots, which he performed himself. So basically, he writes, produces, performs. Can he punch through walls? He had a top 10 hit that was only the sound of him punching through walls. Guy's a superhero. He's an amazing talent. So, Rico, we've both been interviewing musicians for most of our careers. Yep. And I have to be honest, sometimes they're not the greatest communicators. Mm. I think a lot of them basically communicate through their songs. Yes. Is the deal. Yes, which can be a problem, though, when there's no guitar around. Agreed. But I get that. And so for the longest time, I stopped asking one of my favorite questions, how did you write the song? Right, because the answer is usually... I don't know. just sort of happened. <laughs> exactly. That's what they say. Exactly. But when I interviewed James Mercer of The Shins earlier this year about the release of their single, Simple Song, I got the sense that he might have something interesting to say. So I asked him. 
This particular song, um, I remember I was sitting on the living room floor with my, my wife was sitting there on the couch and um, I, I was doing this thing and I kind of thought of it as sort of a march. Dun, 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 dun. Somehow that was enjoyable to play and then I started humming that melody and pretty quickly the words just started coming out. This doesn't usually happen for me. Okay. You know, usually it's like I'll come up with maybe the, the chords and a little bit of a melodic idea. Yeah. And that's it. Yeah. I record it and I kind of go back to it later. It's like a sketch. Yeah, but this particular song, it was like the first two verses, Just I just wrote almost as quickly as I was playing them. Wow. You know, they just came out. And your wife's like, I'm trying to watch Downton Abbey over here. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Would you please with the noise? So you're a relatively young man, but you've been doing this for like 20 years now, and it occurs to me that the business and culture around indie rock or alternative rock has changed radically and I was wondering, you know, what are some of the changes you've experienced? Man, back then, you know, and this is not that long ago. This is like 97, yeah. 98. If you think about it, you would write to K Records. You'd give them $3 mm-hmm. and you'd request a catalog. Six weeks later, if you were lucky, a catalog would arrive and you would have no idea. You couldn't listen to any of the bands. Sure. You'd look at these black and white little sure. thumbnails of the covers yeah. and you'd decide which ones you wanted. Yeah. You'd write a check. You'd send it. And, you know, seriously, two months later, you would get a package. Yeah. That's how you got music back then, just that long ago. And now it's YouTube or wherever. Well, yeah, and now you just you don't buy anything. And <laughs> just go to just, Pandora. You just give give everybody the finger. <laughs> but entering mu- the music world at that time, you, you know, I'm, I'm guessing, like, you're young, you, you have these songs you want to get out, you want to travel, you want to see the world. Mm-hmm. Did you ever imagine it was going to be a career? Uh, no, not, certainly not back then. I, di- I didn't. You know, I, I didn't even hope for that. Yeah. You know, now you can have a niche audience. And actually make a living. That's the terrific thing about the internet is people can discover you and learn about you. And the big sort of record label controller, I don't know, I, I don't know exactly who used to totally yeah. control it, but they, they called the shots. Yeah. And if they weren't into what you were doing, then a kid in Arkansas was never going to find out about you. There's no question that the internet kind of changed the equation when it comes to people finding your music. But I also think culturally, the world shifted a little bit. Um, you know, mainstream culture started to get more interested in kind of what was formerly alternative or college music. And one can make a case that your song in the movie Garden State yeah. contributed to that change. You know, in the scene that's famous to some people in that film, Natalie Portman's character uh, is listening to one of your songs, New Slang, and she shares it with another character. And when she does, she says, You gotta hear this one song. It'll change your life, I swear. And so many people saw that movie. That soundtrack did extremely well. I wonder, did it change your life as a musician? Yeah, I mean, it, it really exposed us to tons and tons of that certain audience that that movie was hitting. Because of the success of that movie, we suddenly got all of these offers, mainly from colleges, to come huh. out and, you know, which are always really kind of good paying gigs. <laughs> yeah, you yeah. Know? And uh, so we they basically budget, started yeah. touring again in support of 
kind yeah. of the soundtrack of that movie. The other thing that scene from that film demonstrates is the emotional attachment people have to your music. I'm wondering if there are any songs of your own that you have that same attachment to. Um, yeah, I mean, there's songs that, that touch me, yeah, that... You know, especially like when you're writing in early on. It's funny because like right now my relationship with these songs on Port Morrow mm-hmm. is like that. They still feel like mine. At a certain point, they won't. There will just be a distance and like, I don't know exactly the psychology behind it, but they'll be out and everyone will be listening to them. People will judge them. I don't know. It's, oh, it's strange. Their value will change. It'll become like... Yeah. And, it's, and so, so to me, I mean, I would say... The song September is one that really is important to me. Which is the B-side of this yeah. single coming out this yeah. week. The singer is talking about a love, you know, and it's yeah. very, it's like a genuine, real love. I'm, mm-hmm. I'm reading into the fact that you're married now and yes. have a family. it's my wife. Uh, <laughs> Under our softly burning lamp, she takes her time Telling stories of our possible lives Love is the ink in the well when her body rides. We have two standard questions we ask of everyone on the show. And the first one is, what question are you tired of being asked in interviews? I don't like being asked to compile lists. Hmm. You know, give us your top five movies or your top yeah. five favorite songs. It's kind of like homework. It's like being <laughs> yeah. given a homework assignment. Okay, I guess number five is, uh, no, that'd be number, that wouldn't even be in there. No, you know, you just, it's, yeah. uh, there's something kind of, I, and I'm not that type of person. I don't really, um, I'm not constantly obsessively listening to like the latest songs. Like, I mean, I'll be asked questions like, what are your top five records from uh, the last half of 2010? You know, like I, like I would know. Yeah, like yeah. I, like, like I, I was... work at a record store or something. Uh, all right, so our other question is, yeah. tell us something we don't know. Okay. It can, can be about you, the band, right. or it could just be an f- interesting fact in the world. Well, something that I I was thinking, it's kind of interesting, the, the, the fact that my dad was, he was a munitions officer in the Air Force and wow. became the head of the, the Inner Service Nuclear Weapons School in, wow. in Albuquerque. So that's probably not something you would imagine, like some pop singers down. Yeah, but did, could he talk about his work or was it? Um, well, that's another part of this story that's funny is that in Albuquerque, there are these mountains just south of town called the Manzano Mountains, the mm-hmm. Apple Mountains. Mm-hmm. There's a massive hollowed out cavern. That, wow, that, like uh, G.I. Joe style. The U.S. government did. I mean, I'm, yeah. I'm guessing. It is yeah. like one of those Lex Luthor type, yeah, you know, yeah. NORAD type things. So for years when I was, when the Cold War was on and stuff and when we lived in Albuquerque, my dad would tell me, he would be like, there are no nuclear weapons in Albuquerque. But dad, what about the, you know, Manzano facility yeah. and stuff? They, my friends say, no, they are not nuclear weapons. So, and I believed him and I told all my friends that and stuff and they believed me. That was total disinformation. (laughs) I've learned. He was, that was the party line or whatever to tell, to to just really be, because there were spies who were going to hear these conversations and stuff. You were talking to your buddies at lunch? Yeah. And so they knew that you just needed to lie basically. So, and it was this massive storage facility for nuclear weapons, but is no more. Now okay. it's decommissioned, and we don't have that many. So you say, so they say. So you say James, you're obviously right. protecting your father. Well, you know what I mean? <laughs> or, or I'm just, again, you know, lying, putting out the ruse. Maybe the shins were created by the Russians to anesthetize <laughs> us. That would be cool.
James Mercer of the Shins, recorded a few months back when they released their album Port of Morrow, and Comrade Rico, if indie pop is a communist conspiracy, then I'm in. <laughs> all right, but remember, all pop is created equal, but some pop is more equal than others. Big Brother Galliano. My friend. Uh, folks, we are almost at the end of our radio music festival here. We have heard from Willie Nelson, Lamont Dozier, even Franz Liszt. In a manner of speaking. Yeah. So, of course, the question becomes, who could possibly top those guys? The Beatles. The Beatles. Michael Lindsay Hogg is a filmmaker who worked with the Fab Four, most famously directing their final film, Let It Be. Last year, he stopped by our studio and told us this story. Hi, I'm Michael Lindsay Hogg, and I've just written a memoir called Luck and Circumstance, which covers several aspects of my life. The ongoing mystery in my life of the nature of my mother's relationship with Orson Welles but also the rock and roll work I did with the Beatles and the Rolling Stones, the Rolling Stones Rock and Roll Circus. I'd done uh, four promo videos with the Beatles, and then after that, their final movie, Let It Be, which was originally going to be a television special, but we couldn't agree on what it was going to be, and so it was turning into a documentary. And I knew that I'd need some kind of ending for this documentary, and I'd had an idea. One day we were having lunch when I said, why don't we do it on the roof? What on the roof? A concert. I put this forward believing that it could work, but without a lot of confidence that they'd go for it. They were interested in their songs, but I was interested in the film. To my surprise, they began to paw at the idea. After lunch, Paul and Mal Evans, Tony and I, Ringo, a few others, went up on the roof and had a look around. I was seeing where the cameras would go. Paul said we should shore up the old roof from below to carry the weight of equipment in Billy Preston's organ. And he and I decided to try for Wednesday of the coming week. On Wednesday, I had my 11 cameras and crew ready for the roof and street below. I'd had a two-way mirror constructed in the lobby to put a camera behind in case the police came in so they could be filmed without their knowing. But there was heavy fog and we pushed to the next day. The plan was to begin around 12.30 to get the lunchtime crowds. On Thursday, January 30th, 1969, the Beatles, Yoko, and I were gathered about noon in a small room off the wooden staircase leading to the roof, and to my dismay, I realized the enterprise was not secure. George didn't want to do it, didn't see the point. What did it have to do with anything? Ringo said, and it's cold up there. Come on, lads, Paul said, it'll be fun. Enthusiasm covering the hard muscle of his determination. Let's do something. But no one moved. The six of us stood there, stasis about to set in, momentum about to be fatally lost, ennui about to settle its cloud in our beings but one voice had not been heard from. Eyes under lids looked toward that person. Time froze. F*** it, said John. Let's do it. One, two, three, Concert on the Roof was the last time the Beatles ever played together to any kind of audience. It was their final performance, their goodbye, although none of us knew it. And the wonderful thing was that they were happy, dispute and rancor forgotten. 
In the 40 minutes we were up there on that cold winter's day, they rocked and rolled and connected as they had in years gone by, friends again. It was beautiful to see. When it was over, John stepped to the mic and said, I'd like to thank you on behalf of the group and ourselves, and I hope we pass the audition. We'll get back to Filmmaker Michael Lindsay Hogg, reading from his memoir, Luck and Circumstance. And people, you can't get much more legendary than that. So we figure it's time to end this all-music episode of The Dinner Party. Jackson Musker is our assistant producer. Thanks to Ravi Carmen, Peter Clowney, Ellen Gettler, Craig Curtis, Judy McAlpin, and Eve Trill. We'll be back next week with an all-new episode. Till then, happy listening.